I'd like to welcome you to what is almost the final week of our series called Knowing and Encountering God, uh, where uh, just, just one week left after this one, and what we've been talking about all through this series is how an encounter with God can change your life by looking at people who had encounters with God in the Bible that changed theirs. So today, we are looking at um, the life of Jonah, and I'm going to read uh, his encounter with God. It's recorded for us in Jonah chapter 2. It's only 10 verses, so I'll read all 10 of them, but I will note on the front end here that while I normally read from the Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible, I'm going to read this chapter to you from the 1984 NIV. Very specific, but I like the way it translated it, so here we go. Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is God's word. So I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but what I'm, um, my starting point for every one of these encounters, as recorded in Scripture, is uh, I just want to zoom out and ask, ask the question, how did this encounter with God change this person's life? And when I asked that question of Jonah's encounter, my answer is really clear. It gave him a heart for people. Uh, if, if you know the story of Jonah, you know, prior to this moment, he actually runs away from the people God called him to run toward. After this encounter with God, he goes to the people he should have gone to in the first place, and he preaches to them. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, how an encounter with God can give you a heart for other people. But before I get into it, let me address what I am confident is an objection that already has arisen in the mind of some of the biblical scholars in attendance today. Uh, if you know the story of Jonah, you know that it doesn't end um, painting Jonah in a favorable light. Doesn't Jonah end with him kind of forgetting everything that he's supposed to learn in this uh, moment of his life and sinking right back into his um, self-centeredness and his callousness toward other people? And the answer is yes, you're absolutely right. That is how Jonah's story ends as recorded in the book of Jonah. But that is one of the many things that I really love about the Bible. The Bible never portrays human growth and development like a sitcom. And what I mean by that is if all you knew about people, if you never met a human being and, and everything you learned about humanity you learned from a sitcom, uh, you would think that human beings not only learn and grow and change very quickly, but they do so permanently. In other words, uh, a sitcom kind of portrays people as these beings that learn these profoundly life-altering lessons very quickly, and once they learn it once, they never need to learn it again. And what I love about the Bible is, is it never portrays people that way. For instance, 
Um, I don't know if we got any Boy Meets World fans in the house, but there's one specific episode of Boy Meets World in which Corey's best friend, Sean, both develops and recovers from an addiction to alcohol within the span of a 20-minute episode. Takes a lot of people more than 20 minutes to drink a beer, but in that show, somebody uh, plunged into and came out of an addiction that they never struggled with ever again in the span of 20 minutes, and the Bible never... Uh, the Bible doesn't allow you to think about life that way or people that way. If, it's, if you read uh, about the people that God chooses to use specifically in the Old Testament, you'll find that the people God uses are very, very far from perfect. He almost tries to find the most imperfect people he can and use them. He, um, he uses people who have a great deal of difficulty. They do, not, they do not grow or change quickly or easily. Their growth trajectories are often not linear, and they often need to learn uh, what they need to learn over and over again. And so I say that to say that while it's true uh, that even after this encounter with God, Jonah has a whole lot of growth ahead of him and a whole lot more lessons to learn, the point remains that uh, this moment in his life is the moment when God begins to break him out of his self-centeredness and develop in him a heart for other people. And so uh, the, I think the kind of million-dollar question on the, on the front end of, of the teaching then is, um, so what about this encounter with God began to do that for Jonah? You know, what, what's the, the, the secret sauce here? What's the essence of this encounter? And the answer is uh, actually remarkably clear. Um, what happened is he began to understand the grace of God. He even says so at the end of this prayer. He says in, in verses 8 and 9, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And then the end of verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. Right after he spoke those words, the fish released them because it was right then that he had learned um, what God was trying to get him to learn. And it was all about this thing called uh, grace. Uh, and maybe you hear that and you think, well, I already know all about grace, so maybe this week isn't for me. But, but let me just offer you this. What the book of Jonah is, is doing in chapter 2, uh, and, and it, this is something that actually kind of hits you in the face when you let it, Jonah is a reminder that even a prophet of God who receives direct revelation from God can be deeply in the dark about the grace of God. And if it's, if it's true that Jonah, uh, who literally heard from God audibly, could be so deeply in the dark about God's grace to the point that it was distorting his life, I think it's highly likely that the same thing is going on in your and my life to, to one degree or another. And so let me just kind of bottom line it with this. If, uh, if you can sympathize with Jonah <clears throat> and, and you can see that there is a lot of inner ugliness in your life uh, that has led to historically and maybe right now is leading to a lot of outer brokenness in your life, and you realize that you have a real problem with self-centeredness. Uh, you realize uh, that you can't just flip a switch and deal with that, and you would love to be broken out of that uh, and to begin to live an other-centered life because you're tired of the misery of self-centeredness that the human heart so naturally gravitates toward. If any of that uh, is kind of where you're coming from, this is an amazing week for you because what we're looking at is the story of how God did that for Jonah and how God can do that for you and I. And it all, all boils down to this thing called grace. So we're going to look at this prayer of Jonah in, in, in chapter 2, and I just want to ask three questions of it during our time together this morning. Number one, what is grace? Number two, how do you receive it? And number three, what can you expect to happen in your life when it actually begins to take root in your life? That's what we're going to talk about today. So first and foremost, uh, what is grace? You know, we, we talk about grace all the time. You probably hear that in, in, in some way, shape, or form in every one of my, my sermons, but I don't know that we always um, take enough time to really 
discover what it actually is. And, and when, you, um, when you look at the Hebrew word that's translated grace most often in the Old Testament, uh, what you find is it's a word that, that can literally mean favor. <clears throat> grace means favor. And when you hear that in the English language, you know, you, you think about doing somebody a favor, you're thinking about an action, but, but favor in the Bible is a much, uh, much deeper, more all-encompassing um, concept. In the Bible, to find favor with someone means, and this is important, we're going to get back to this, to find favor means to be let into a place that you have no right to be in on your own merit. Uh, to be led into a place you have no right to be in, and, and when the Bible talks about favor, it's always talking about it in a relational sense. And there's a great story of, of exactly what that kind of favor looks like in the life of Jacob, who he actually talked about a few weeks ago. If you were with me, you remember that um, Jacob, as recorded in, uh, in the Bible, all his life is portrayed as this really manipulative, um, deceptive con man. Uh, who, who wounds very deeply everybody that gets close to him. And of all the people that Jacob wounds, uh, I, I think you can make a, um, a strong case that nobody is more wounded by Jacob than his own twin brother Esau. When Esau was born, Jacob was literally grabbing at his heel and his, you know, all his life. He was, it's a metaphor, basically, for, for how Jacob interacted with Esau uh, as long as the two lived. He's always trying to get a leg up on him. He's always trying to de- get something from him, and he's, he, he succeeds more often than not because you read the story of Jacob and Esau, and you'll find that Jacob uh, steals the birthright from Esau, and then he actually steals the father's blessing from Esau. And so uh, it was a huge deal in that culture back then, and, and um, the two had a, a terrible falling out. Esau actually wanted to take Jacob's life, and so they had, uh, they had to part ways for a number of years. They didn't see each other literally for decades. So uh, Jacob's life basically begins to catch up with him, and in Genesis chapter 33, he has for the first time in a couple of decades a face-to-face encounter with his brother that he'd wronged wrong so deeply. And one of the first things that Jacob says to Esau is, Esau, let me find favor with you. And I think you know what, what Jacob's getting at there. What he's basically saying by even asking Esau for favor, he's saying, I know that I have no right uh, to, be a, to be a part of your life anymore. I know that you are completely justified in hating me and for, uh, you know, cutting me out of your life forever. But when he says, let me find favor, Jacob's saying, but I'm asking you, purely because of your grace, let me in anyway. Not because of who I am, but Esau, because of who you are. So if you want to define, if you want a succinct definition of, of, of grace, I think that, that's it right there. Grace is, uh, it's, it's, it's favor extended to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Uh, Grace is about being let in relationally, on the one hand, uh, but it's about being let in relationally even though you don't deserve it and the person letting you in isn't required to give it to you. And you see kind of both sides of of that definition of grace right here in Jonah's prayer. Uh, So so first off, you you see the idea of being let in. In chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah says, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Uh, What Jonah is saying there is he's saying, God, I was far away from you, and there is no chance that I would have ever gotten back to you on my own. And yet, Jonah says, you came and got me, and you brought me back completely through your effort, completely by your grace. That's what God's grace is fundamentally about. It's about him hunting you down, 
despite the fact that you would have, not only could you not have found him, you weren't even looking for him, God's grace is about him hunting you down, getting a hold of you, and bringing you back, and letting you all the way, not, not in a probationary sense, not as a, now you got to sit at the kid's table, not as a, now you're an employee, and you better shape up, or you're going to get fired, but letting you all the way back into a relationship with himself. And, and one of the main reasons that grace is such a transformative thing for the human heart you know, we literally have a song, Amazing Grace. How precious did that grace appear? The hour I first believed. The reason that grace is such a life-shaping thing when people experience it is because as relational creatures made in the image of a relational God, the human heart has a deep need to be let in relationally. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but one of the only things that human beings will do in any culture at any po- you can observe this at any point throughout human history, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every time, what human beings have, have always done um, when we start you know, grouping up and gathering together is they, they always have a way of forming inner rings. No matter where people are, if you look hard enough, you'll eventually find that they, for whatever reason, they just form an inner circle. Everywhere you look that there's a collection of people, you'll find this. So, for instance, in companies, the, the, you know, the inner circle, the inner ring is the partners. Uh, in high school, it's the cool kids. Uh, in academia, it's the tenured thought leaders. In Hollywood, it's the A-list celebrities. Everywhere you go. Uh, in the inner ring, you know this. The inner ring is made up of, of, of the people whose opinions really matter. The people that if you can get them to like you, if you can get them to approve of you and accept you, then you've made it. And however secure uh, a person pretends to be, uh, every one of us is driven by a, you know, a kind of desperate need to be let in, to be accepted, to, to get the praise of the praiseworthy. And most of us, uh, probably if we got honest, most of us would say that for most of our lives, despite the fact that we wanted to be let in, we felt like we've been left out. And so the point is that, that being accepted and approved and welcomed by the people whose opinions really matter, that's, that's a, it's, it's a deep fundamental need of the human heart. Um, I came across this quote from C.S. Lewis not too long ago. He was talking about this very thing. He was talking about the real motivation behind a person's drive for success, and, and you know, kind of interesting, he, he was basically, he was coming at this from the angle that nobody who, who's driven by a need to succeed in life, nobody goes after success for success's sake. You, the only reason that you're driven to succeed is because of what your success is going to purchase for you, what, what it's going to make available to you. Here's what he said. I don't believe the economic motive and the erotic motive account for everything that goes on in the world. In other words, he's saying, I don't think everything is about sex and money for people. I think there's a lot more that motivates people than just those two things. And then describing this need to be let in, he says, it's a lust, a longing to be inside, which takes many forms. You want the delicious knowledge that just we four or five, we're the people who really know. And he went on and said, as long as you're governed by that desire, you'll never be satisfied. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider, you will remain. And so the gospel enters into that context and it says, first and foremost, to people who've never felt like you've been welcomed in. And maybe you feel like your life's ruined because you're, you're still on the outside. But then the gospel also says to people who have made it into whatever their inner ring is, only to find 
you know, my life's just as empty inside of this as it was when I was working to get inside of it. What the gospel reminds us of is that the reason you and I are so restless, either, either desperately trying to get in that inner circle or totally dissatisfied once we made it in, the gospel is this reminder that the reason that you and I are still as restless as we are is because we have this tendency to gravely underestimate what it takes to satisfy the deep longings of our hearts. The, the gospel reminds us that no matter what inner ring that a bunch of people decided to form, no matter which one of those rings we can work ourselves into, no matter whose love and approval and acceptance and welcome that we can get you know, through earning and achieving and kind of boosting our resume, what we will always eventually find is that it's not enough for us. Because the, the, the love and the approval and the acceptance that we're made for, that we're designed to need, is the love and the approval and the acceptance of our Creator. And so what the gospel allows you to say when it really takes root in your life is uh, something you'll never be able to say until you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, which is, I have been, by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, I have been welcomed into the inner ring that I've been looking for my entire life. And I finally have access to the love and the approval and the acceptance of the one that can actually heal me and satisfy me. So first and foremost, grace is about, it's about being let in, but that by itself is not why grace is such a life-changing thing. The reason that, that grace is, you know, it forms such a pivot point in a person's life to the point that they're never the same again when they genuinely experience it is because grace, it, it is about being let in, but it's about being let in despite the fact that you don't deserve to be let in by a person who's not obligated to let you in. This is the other half of this that you see in Jonah's prayer. In verse 4, he says, he says, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. When Jonah says, I was banished, he, he's, uh, he's using the same word that describes what God did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And, um, and for Jonah to use that same word to describe the state that he's in, what he's basically saying is, I know that I'm in the condition that I'm in purely because of choices that I made. This isn't, you know, God set me up to fail. This isn't, you know, I had a rough childhood. This isn't, there's nothing like that. This is Jonah refusing to come in his situation sideways. He says, I am where I am because of decisions that I've made. And God's under no obligation to rescue me or keep me from the weight of, of, of what I'm feeling right now. But right after that, he, he uses the word yet. Yet means there is absolutely no connection between what came before and what comes after. That's what yet means when it's used in a sentence. And so what Jonah's saying here is, I was in the condition that I was in because of choices that I made, and yet, through no work, through no achievement, through no human ingenuity, through no effort, through no merit of my own, God is not finished with me and my story is not over. I'll just tell you, only the grace of God actually lets you say that and it be more than wishful thinking. The grace of God is the only element in the world that allows you to say that and it be functionally true. What, what grace does is it forms a yet in the life of its recipient. Grace allows you to say, I, I've, I've made an absolute mess of my life. 
you know, I've, I've ruined relationships, I've let people down, I've violated trust, I've hurt the people that counted on me the most, I've done things I swore I wouldn't do, I've returned to things that I swore I'd walked away from for good, I have completely and utterly failed. Grace says all of that can be true, and yet your story is not over purely because of the grace of God. So if, if you want to, if you want to, kind of bottom line that and, 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 and succinctly summarize that, what grace is at its essence, it's being let in relationally, even though you don't deserve to be let in by a person who's not obligated to let you in. So secondly here, if that's what grace is, the, the question is, well, how do you actually receive it? And maybe that's a, that's a funny sounding question to you because obviously the hallmark of Christianity is you can't work for grace. So if, if you comb Scripture looking for a set of instructions that if you just perfectly apply the techniques, you'll encounter grace, obviously, that's not Christianity. So you're not going to find that in the Bible. But what might surprise you to hear is while the Bible doesn't offer you a set of instructions uh, to, to achieve grace, it, does tell, it, it offers you basically a formula in which grace will profoundly alter your life. And the formula for experiencing the life-changing power of the grace of God is, is basically this. You see this all over the New Testament in account after account. You see it in, in Jonah's prayer. Here's the formula for grace. You need to, on the one hand, see the depths of your sin, and on the other hand, see the height of God's love. To the degree that you're able to see those things over and over and over again, to that degree, grace will continually tra- change your life from now until the moment that you step into glory. So a couple years ago, I heard somebody say, and I, think, I, I believe this, that, that people can broadly be kind of pushed into one of three categories. Everybody here today uh, naturally fits into one of these three categories. First category, you have people who do not see the depths of their sin. These are people who would say, yeah, I mean, of course, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but I'm a good person, you know. Uh, I've helped a lot of people. I certainly try harder than other people to be a good person. I've lived a better life than a lot of the people around me. And I'm pretty certain, you know, at the end of this life, if there is a judge and there is a punishment and a reward and that kind of thing, then, you know, I'll be fine, you know, generally, relatively speaking. That kind of person, according to the Bible, will never, ever experience the life-changing power of grace because they don't see the depths of their sin. It's pretty logical. You can't be changed by something if you don't even see how much you need it. So, so first off, you have people that don't see the depths of their, of their sin. Then you have another category of people uh, who they, their, their primary issue is they don't see the height of God's love. These are people that, that know full well exactly how much they failed, and they go through life carrying it around like a disease. And they're constantly, you know, saddling themselves with guilt and shame and condemnation. Um, but what's, what's kind of ironic about the people that fit into that group is that they're actually driven by and, and molded by a really subtle and a really difficult to deal with form of pride. I remember uh, years ago, before I was coming to this church, I was meeting with, uh, you know, an older guy who was kind of a spiritual mentor in my life at the time and just opening up to him about my life. And, and I was telling him, you know, how angry I was at myself because I, I had failed and I felt like I wasn't measuring up and I just, you know, it, there was a lot of condemnation and I just kept beating myself up and we talked about it for, you know, several evenings over at his house and, and, and one time he said something to me that it, it didn't offend me, it just really shocked me, it surprised me and he, he, he looked at me and he said, uh, Ryan, I think what you're dealing with is a really subtle form of pride and that floored me because I thought, how could I be rightly accused of being prideful if I'm the first person to admit how badly I've failed? But he was exactly right. 
Because people that fit into this category, think about this, this is so subtle, this is so deceptive, and that's why in some ways people that are in this second category, it's almost harder for, for them to get out of it than people in the first. The people that fit into this second category who were always beating themselves up, and I'm such a failure, and they're you know, basically whipping themselves in the back with a cat of nine tails, underneath all of that self-flagellation is this kind of toxic idea, this toxic mindset that says, I shouldn't need grace. You know, I get why other people need grace. I can understand why other people would fail, why they need mercy and compassion and forgiveness, but I shouldn't need that. I shouldn't need forgiveness. I shouldn't have done what I've done. I could have lived a better life, and I can't forgive myself for failing to meet my own expectations. So what's so kind of subtle there is that the person in, in, in category two, although it's, it's a lot harder for them to see it, they're just as locked into a religion of self-effort as person from category one. And what's keeping them from experiencing the life-changing power of God is they don't see the height of God's love for them. So that's the first category. They don't see the depths of their sin. The second category, they don't see the height of God's love. But then there's a third category of people that sees both the depths of their sin and the height of God's love. And the people that fall into that category are people the Bible refers to as Christians. To be a Christian at all, I mean, to, 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 to cross that threshold even an, an inch into the kingdom of God, into a life-changing relationship with Jesus, you need to see, you need to come to terms with both the depths of your sin and the height of God's love for you. I think most people understand that, but what I believe we are so prone to forgetting is that in order to grow as a Christian, all you need to do is go back to what you realized the day you became a Christian and realize it more deeply than you did the day you became a Christian. That's all growth in Christianity looks like. I, I heard a, a, a pastor, Tim Keller, I really admire, put it this way. Growth in Christianity looks like from the day you give your life to Jesus to the day you step into glory, you're just continually growing in this knowledge that on the one hand, I'm more sinful than I dared believe, yet more loved than I dare hope at the same time. And as your realization of both of those things goes deeper, the transformation in your life goes deeper. That's the formula. It's remained unchanged for 2,000 years. And you see that in, in, uh, in Jonah's life here. So he's, he's, he's facing his sin and the love that God has for him despite his sin kind of at the same time. Um, but what I want to do, we're going to look at how Jonah faced his sin. What I want to look at is, is how Jonah does this because it's, it's a little bit deeper than I think we normally think. It's, it's really challenging. Uh, it requires a lot of us, but it's also deeply practical. So it's, you see it in verse, verse 8. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Here's what, here's what this prayer is showing us. If you want to see the depths of your sin, it'll never be enough for you to just look at the surface level behavior in your life. If you want to see the depths of your sin, it can't just be you kind of going through, God, I'm sorry that I looked at this and thought this and said this and did this and I didn't do these things that I kind of knew you were calling me to do. Amen. You're if you want to see the depths of your sin, you've got to figure out how to get below the surface in your life. Uh, it, what Joan is showing us here is you need to look at the particular idols in your life, the things that, that functionally are more important to you than God. And the reason for that is because every sin you've ever committed, this is a bold statement to make, but think about it. Every sin you've ever committed in your entire life and every sin you go on to commit from this moment forward is nothing more than a byproduct of the idols you were functionally worshiping at the time. Every single sin is just a manifestation of the fact that we've set our heart on something other than God. And, and so what, what this is getting at is, is the first thing that you have to do is you need to be able to identify the idols in your life because 
Shocking statement. I mean it when I say that. This verse is saying the idols that you're clinging to right now, those are actively causing you to forfeit the grace of God that could otherwise be yours. You want to talk about a sobering statement. Now, given that I'm preaching in the year 2022 in the modern secular West, most of the people in our culture, if they teleported into this church service uh, and heard a pastor talking about identifying the idols in your life, you know, their, their first thought would be, listen, I'm not an archaic, backwards, pre-scientific, you know, pagan. I don't worship idols. Uh, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this idea. And, and the, the greatest answer that I've, I've read so far to that mindset uh, comes from a, a quote by the name of, of, um, name of an author, uh, David Foster Wallace. If you've been at this church for a while, you've you probably heard me read this before. I usually break it out two to three times a year. Uh, but, but if you're new, um, I think this is probably the, the uh, it's just a, it's a great quote that identifies exactly how prone the heart is to worshiping something. And I, I always mention this on the front end because it's going to sound, it's going to be really surprising to you if you've never heard it before. Wallace was not a Christian. He did not believe the Bible was God's word. He didn't put his trust in Jesus or anything like that. Despite that, listen to what he says. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he gets into examples. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, I've always ended the quote there, but let me just read another several sentences because I I found the expanded version of it today, and this really caught my eye. He says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are the default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing, and the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The more I read that, the more shocking to me it is that Wallace was not a believer because his ideas sound so obviously predicated upon a biblical worldview. Everything that he's saying there is biblical. And the point is, if, if you have any desire to grow into a person of greatness as God defines greatness, then the first thing you're going to have to do is get below the surface level issues in your life, the, the, the anger, the envy, the bitterness, the whatever it is, and get introspective and ask yourself, what has functionally become more important to you than God? Or to use Wallace's words here, to ask yourself, what are you looking to to tap real meaning in life? What are the things that you're orienting your life around right now because if only subconsciously you've told yourself, my life will finally be worth living, I can finally rest, I'll finally be enough, I'll finally make it, I can finally be happy when I get that, or if you already have it, just ask yourself, what's the thing that that if you lost it, 
you know that your life would lose all meaning entirely. The first thing you have to do to, in order to grow spiritually, and I don't know that there's any shortcuts to this, and I don't know that it ever doesn't involve pain, is to look inside your own heart and ask yourself what's taking the place that Scripture says is only safe for God to occupy. Because whatever is there right now, what Jonah's prayer is, is, is telling you and it's telling me is that those idols that you're clinging to and those idols that are clinging to you at this very moment are causing you to forfeit the grace of God that could otherwise be yours. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian because I think this is an ongoing process throughout your life. It means the level of change, the level of growth, the level of peace, the level of joy, the level of transformation has a governor on it until you're willing to put in this work. So first off, you and I have to, have to see the depths of our sin, but obviously, I kind of touched on this earlier, if you stay there, that'll just crush you. And so the other thing that, that, that Jonah shows us here is you, you also have to see the height of God's love. And again, I, I want to I draw your attention, this is really convicting to me, to how Jonah does this. What, what Jonah's showing us here is that just like it's not enough, if you want to come to terms with the depths of your sin, just like it's not enough to say, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, it's also not enough to say, but God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. If, if you have any desire to really see progress in your spiritual life, then, then nobody can do this for you. And nobody can, I don't even know that people can really tell you exactly how this needs to look in your life because your, your, your own temperament and your own relationship with God and your own unique life experiences, what every one of us has to do is what Jonah's doing here, which is find ways that your own heart is captivated by the love that God has for you. And as far as I know, that process is going to be as unique to you between you and God as your, as, your, as your fingerprint is. But you have to figure out ways that your own heart is captured by God's love. And, and here's how Jonah does it. You may have noticed uh, two times, there's a third time that's a, that's a little more implicit, but two times in this prayer, Jonah, kind of out of nowhere, uh, mentions the temple, which is an interesting thing to be thinking about when you're in the belly of a fish and you don't even know if you're ever going to survive to see the outside of it. Twice Jonah mentions the temple. The reason he did that is because he knew something, or at least he was learning something, that we need to learn if, if we're going to grow spiritually. What he knew was that God's grace was not cheap. Uh, if, if, um, if you believe that God sort of looks down from heaven, and I just want to caveat here, of course, no one would say they believe this. We just live like it. If you believe that God looks down from heaven and says, you know, people are going to be people, all relationships are messy, you got to take them as they are, just come on in. If you believe that God's grace is the equivalent of him dumbing down his standards so that you and I can declare victory, of course, grace is never going to change you. God's grace, according to Scripture, it is free, but it is anything but cheap. And the temple was a constant reminder of that. The temple was a constant reminder this is going to be important, so hold on to this. The temple was a constant reminder that the grace of God can only come into your life and change you at the cost of a sacrifice. Hang on to that. <clears throat> so I don't, some of you may have heard that recently Katie and I uh, had the chance to go to Mexico. First time in my life. We, we flew down there uh, just for four days with some of our best friends. And, and while we were there, we weren't planning to do this, but we saw Chichen Itza which I don't know if you've ever heard of before. It is a um, Mayan temple that is one of the seven wonders of the world. If you saw a picture of it, you, you, you'd probably recognize it. And, um, and so it was about two hours away from where we were staying. We knew that it was going to be like an, basically an all-day excursion. And uh, so we got hooked up with a tour guide, a guy named Cedric, 
who was absolutely amazing. Uh, he totally made the trip for us. And so when Cedric led us to the temple itself, he was explaining, you know, the ins and outs of it and, uh, and why it, it made the list of one of the, the seven wonders of the world, which is pretty incredible in and of itself. Uh, but then he showed us around the rest of the ancient ruins that that temple was a part of. And he kept telling us about this, this one uh, place that he, he, he just kept referring to it as the ball court. And we were wondering, you know, what, what on earth is that and what's that about and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, he led us into this, um, I guess you could call it an arena. Uh, it, it, it was, I would say, comparable to size-wise. It was larger than, but it was, it was pretty comparable to a football field. Uh, the main difference being that on either side of the field, not the ends, but the long sides, uh, there were these really high stone walls, had to be at least 25 foot high, and jutting out of the walls, made out of stone, obviously, were these two, they looked like basketball hoops, except they were rotated right side up. Uh, and so we were, you know, desperate to know what went on in this arena, what, you know, what, what piece of history are, are we standing on? And so Cedric was explaining it to us, and he said that we have, at this point, we found, uh, I want to say dozens of these arenas, and the carvings on the walls of those arenas have given us a lot of clarity about what actually took place inside of them. And what we know is apparently two teams of seven would compete, they would use a rubber ball, and they would try to get the ball through the hoop. Um, But the carvings on the wall give you um, a little bit of the the nitty-gritty details about what actually happened. So... I wish I had taken a picture of this. I'm just going to do my best to try to describe it to you. When you look at the carvings on the wall, what you find is there's two teams facing each other, separated by this symbol. So on the right-hand side, you have, a, you have a team. There's six people standing, all facing the same way. And at, at the front of their line, their leader is kneeling, only he does not have a head. <clears throat> then you have this symbol in front of them. And on the other side of this symbol, there's another team of seven that's facing them. What's different is all seven people on this team are standing, and the leader of the team on this side is holding in his hand the severed head of the opposing team's leader. So what we've been able to ascertain is that the teams that competed in these arenas competed to the death which was, a, you know, it's a stunning thing to just consider. <clears throat> but then the tour guide asked us a really interesting question. He asked us, so who do you think died? Which team? And I thought, you know, that's obvious. It had to be the losers because, you know, survival of the fittest. Not to mention, who would try to win if you knew that winning would cost you your life? Uh, But that seems so obvious to me, and I figured, well, maybe there's a reason he's asking us, and sure enough, he explained that it was the winners, not the losers, that paid with their lives in those arenas, which I thought was pretty stunning. And he started to explain to us why, and he was trying to get us out of our kind of modern individualistic self-preservation mindset that we were all kind of, you know, intrinsically uh, molded by, and he was trying to help us think like somebody in, in, you know, the ancient world in Central America. He said, think about Think about what a sacrifice actually is. Think about what you're doing when you make a sacrifice. And and as soon as he said those words, my wife, uh, Katie, finished his sentence for him. He said, think about what you're doing when you sacrifice. And Katie beat him to it. And she just said, you give your best. And when she said that, it was like a moment of silence. And it really impacted me. And what I couldn't help thinking was, and it's amazing to me, 
how close, even without realizing it, the Mayans got to the gospel. The fact that there was an ancient civilization in Central America that had come up with rituals like that, to me, I don't know how you process that, but to me, all that does is prove this statement that Paul makes in the letter known as Romans, where he says that the law of God has been etched on every human heart. The, the fact that the Mayans were doing things like that, even though they didn't have a Bible to read, meant at least three things were true of them. They learned three things that nobody taught them, that nobody really needs to teach the human heart. It's etched there by God. They knew, first and foremost, there is a God. Secondly, they knew that we're not naturally acceptable to that God. Thirdly, they knew that that God's approval and acceptance would not come cheap. It would require a sacrifice of the absolute highest quality. You don't give this God the leftovers. You don't give this God the vanquished. You don't give this God the losers. You give him the absolute best you have. Christianity enters into that mindset and it says, you're exactly right. But humans could never come up with a sacrifice of a high enough quality to appease a God this holy. And so what the gospel says is that God went and did the unthinkable. Our God actually became the sacrifice for us. So let me return to the question that I asked earlier. Is God's grace free? Absolutely. Is it cheap? Absolutely not. And the only way that you and I are ever going to be moved and captivated and changed by the height of God's love for us is if we figure out ways to understand what his love cost him, what it cost him to love me, what it cost him to love you. That's what Jonah's thinking about here when he thinks about the temple. It's what you and I have to do when we think about the man who, who, who called himself the final temple, Jesus Christ. And so the point is when you put both halves of this together, and you see not only the depths of your sin, but also the height of God's love for you despite your sin, that is the formula for ongoing life change. Now, the last question I said I wanted to, to cover today is very simply, how do you know you have this grace? And what should you expect to happen in your life when this grace takes root? And what Jonah's life shows us, there's a lot of different answers to that in Scripture, but what Jonah's life shows us is that when God's grace is operative in your life, when it's no longer just an idea that you think about or something that you memorize and can spit back to somebody, when it actually begins to take root in your life, what it leads to is change from the inside out. First off, you, inside Jonah, internally, what we can see in this story is he's now a man of, of, of joy and thanksgiving that he can't even contain. You see it in verse 9. He says, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. I just want you to consider this for a minute. He was not out of the fish when he said that. That's a kind of joy and a kind of thanksgiving that has invaded his life before anything around him changed. That's a pretty amazing thing for me to, for me to consider. Years ago, I, I heard a hymn. The lyric said, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. 
That hymn is, is getting at what happens to the human heart the moment you begin to experience the grace of God, and it's exactly what's happening to Jonah here. Prior to this moment in his life, if you're familiar with the story, Jonah only served God when it made sense to him. The moment serving God stopped making sense, he stopped serving. Jonah served God when, when it paid off for him. The moment it really cost him something that he held dear, he stopped. He, he actually ran away is what he did, and the truth is that's how... Maybe if we got honest, a lot of us tend to interact with God. We're not really serving him. We're just, we happen to agree with him in some areas of our life. But when it doesn't make sense or when it stops paying off, well, then that's it. That's just a compulsory kind of surface level, obligatory, duty-driven relationship with God. That's what Jonah's life was like until grace changed all that. Now you're reading that he's, he's sacrificing to God with a song of thanksgiving even before God has done anything for him to rescue him from the circumstances that he's in. And not only that, he says he's, he's what, he, what I vowed I'll make good. So he's making promises and commitments to God that nobody's making. The point is his motives for serving God have been completely revolutionized. But, but for the purposes of our teaching today, what I, what I want to draw, draw at and end with is that that's not where his change ended. And what Jonah finally shows us is that grace never dead ends in the life of its recipient. And to show you what I mean, let me look again at verse 8. This will be the last verse we look at today. Verse 8 says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, in one sense, just a few moments ago, we looked at it this way. In one sense, you can read that verse as Jonah taking a self-inventory and realizing all the things that have taken the place of God in his life. And that's true. That's appropriate. That's accurate. But the other way you can read this verse is that it's also, it's, it's evidence that Jonah now has a profoundly changed view of the people that used to be his enemies, the Ninevites. When he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace, that word grace is the same word that all throughout the Old Testament referred to God's saving love for Israel. It was a, it was a love that he did uniquely have for Israel. But when Jonah says, the, the people clinging to idols... They forfeit that grace that could be theirs. This is Jonah saying, those idol-worshiping Ninevites, those people that have wounded my people and subjugated my people, those people that I used to hate about a half hour ago, this is Jonah coming to the life-changing realization, wait a minute, the grace that changed my life could change their life too. And so, so what Jonah's revealing to us here is that on the one hand, when, when grace becomes real to you, it completely transforms the way that you approach God, but it never stays there. The grace of God might be a deeply personal thing, but it, it, when it's real, it's not a private thing. It's personal, but it's not private. And what, what, he, what he's also showing us here is that when God's grace begins to explode in your life, you'll never look at other people the same. You'll never look at God the same. You'll never look at, your, at yourself the same. But one of the telltale signs that you know it's not just an emotional high, it's real, is you look at the people he's placed in your life differently. I didn't share this with the 9 a.m., but, but this came to my mind. I remember years ago when we started doing those big baptism services that, you know, we'd done for a number of years. I, I can't remember if it was 2017 or 2018. The first time that we did one on an Easter Sunday, it, it felt a little bit like Pentecost must have felt, at least the closest I've ever gotten to it. I, I think we ran three services and we baptized all these people, and it was like heaven came down. I mean, people were sobbing and weeping, and it was amazing. And I'll never forget, somebody came up to me in the aftermath of that service, and they told me, you know, and, and it was obvious they had just been so moved by what they saw God had done. They said, I needed to believe again that God could do something like that. And the reason I share that with you is because when the grace of God explodes in your life, it teaches you to believe again that God can do something like that. 
When, when you experience the kind of grace that Jonah experienced here, when you look at other people where everybody else might see a failure, where everybody else might see a screw-up, where everybody else might look down on someone, all you see is a potential recipient of the grace that changed your life. That means that, that when you look at somebody who's made a mess of their life and they stumbled and fallen a hundred times and they just don't seem to get it, the overarching theme of your heart has to be, I must, I must look like more of a mess when God found me in God's eyes than that person does to me right now. But if God could do all that he's done and is still doing in my life, then just imagine what God could do with them. Imagine the grace that could be theirs. And, and you begin to live this life born of this desire that one more person might come to experience it like you did. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're all done today. Just, just, just one final uh, implication here. <clears throat> this series, from start to finish, it's all about looking at, at, at different encounters that people had with God in Scripture. And so when you look at them week after week, I can't help but compare them and ask myself, well, what's unique about this one? And, and when, you, when you do that with Jonah, really the thing that causes his encounter with God to stand out is its location. Because if you've been here for this series, you know, Jacob had an encounter with God beside a river, and Moses had an encounter with God beside a bush. Hannah and Haman, we don't even know where they were when they prayed and had these encounters with God because Scripture didn't even think it was noteworthy. But when you look at where God had Jonah, when Jonah had this life-changing encounter with God, it, it, it stands out from the rest because here Jonah was in the belly of a fish. And so the final thing that Jonah chapter 2 is telling us, this is a sobering thing, but I actually think it's a very encouraging thing, is that God is willing to lead you and to lead me into very dark, desperate, deep places in order to show us what His grace is like. And in saying that, I'm totally, I'm totally positive that there are people listening to this right now where that's where you're coming from. And maybe you feel like you've been in a place like Jonah was in, in the belly of that fish, for a very long time. If that's where you're coming from today, really my heart is that you would leave here with a renewed sense of hope because I am so positive. I am so positive, and I'll leave you with this. If Jonah could speak to us today about this experience in his life, he would say, hands down, it was terrifying what God led me through. And I hated every second of it. I just wanted it to be over. I doubted whether or not I'd even survive it half the time. But I know above all of that, Jonah would say, but if I could go back and do it differently, I wouldn't change a thing because I needed to feel that lonely to learn that God was with me wherever I went. I needed to be that afraid to learn what the peace of God was like. And I needed to be put into that kind of darkness so that my eyes could adjust and learn to see the light of God's grace. And that's the hope that we have as God's people, that whatever he has to lead us through between now and the day we step into glory, when we stand before him, we're gonna know it was worth it. That's Jonah's encounter with God. That could be your encounter as well. By grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, I think there's really just, just two kinds of people listening to this. There's people that need to experience your grace for the first time and people that need to experience it again. You know where every single, every single one of us is coming from. You know all the hurts. You know all the fears. You know all the pain. You know all the situations. You know the story that you're writing in each and every one of our lives, God, I, I just, as, as hesitant and fearful as I am to pray this over my own life and all of our lives, nevertheless, God, I just want to ask you, whatever you got to do to us, 
whatever you got to put us through, whatever you got to lead us through, whatever you have to allow, do whatever you have to, Father, to show us what your grace is like so that we can be transformed by the grace of God poured out on us through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we come before you. Amen.